Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. This is your sneak peek for the week of March 1st. We got a couple separation of powers battles and a big voting rights case coming up. Hopefully we'll actually be able to hear them this time. Anyone who tried to listen to the Lang argument on Wednesday knows what I'm talking about. But first, Kimberly, we had some notable action on the orders list Monday in some lingering high-profile cases. Can you tell us what happened first in this leftover election litigation? Right. So, Jordan, you may remember that recently there was a federal election Mm -hmm. um, and some controversy surrounding it. And some cases. Um, And some cases. Uh, in all seriousness, we heard a lot about um, claims of stopping the steal, voter fraud um, from the Trump camp. But in court, uh, Trump's attorneys were pressing different claims. Uh, and so these involved multiple challenges to changes in, in election laws by entities other than the state legislatures, which the Constitution generally vests with the power to determine election laws. So, for example, here in Pennsylvania, the state Supreme Court changed the rules surrounding mail-in ballots and uh, allowing for more time for them to be received given concerns over, you know, the coronavirus and problems with USPS. Uh, And the questions for the justices was whether uh, these changes can only be done by the state legislatures themselves or if other state entities can do them. So uh, the focus here is on Pennsylvania and other states won by Joe Biden, Georgia, Arizona, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. But really states across the country changed election laws in the face of the pandemic. Um, So we saw an early challenge to North Carolina, which had the potential um, to be a, a, you know, a battleground state. Um, there it was the state election board that changed the rules, not the Supreme Court. But, you know, the point I'm making is this was not an isolated incident, um, even though these were really the only cases left over at the Supreme Court. So the court as a whole rejected these appeals. Um, but Justices Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch noted their dissents in the cases and said they would have heard them. So in, uh, in kind of two dissents that were written, they emphasized that the court's decision would not affect the outcome of the presidential election. Um, In particular, the state had been ordered to separate ballots that were received under the new deadline, and they only had about 10,000 ballots, uh, which wasn't enough uh, to make up the margin of victory. Um, But you know, Justice Thomas in particular um, seemed kind of miffed by that. so, you know, he, he focused on the fact that the court, you know, refused to take up the case in this kind of low stakes setting, instead setting up a potentially outcome determinative decision uh, for future elections. So here's a little, um, here's how Justice Thomas ended his dissent. He says, one wonders what this court waits for. We failed to settle this dispute before the election and thus provide clear rules. Now we again failed to provide clear rules for future elections. The decision to leave election law hidden beneath a shroud of doubt is baffling. Yeah, and the notion of wondering why the court's waiting is actually a good segue into another high-profile case that was finally disposed of on Monday. This was uh, another infamous saga, the one over Donald Trump's financial information. And after sitting on Trump's latest appeal for a while, not really being clear what was happening, the court rejected the former president's last-ditch effort. Recall that the court ruled against Trump in July, but they did it in a way that 
let Trump keep pressing his claim and effectively run out the clock on sensitive information emerging before the 2020 election. Um, now, as a private citizen, the DA has his records, and that's among the potential legal issues that Donald Trump has to worry about now. Right. And so we just got word um, that this week, you know, um, Vance's office actually received those documents. So this mm-hmm. probably is not the end of the story. No. Um, and then, Jordan, before we get to the cases that the Supreme Court's going to be hearing this next week, um, we got an opinion in a case this week. Um, somebody, I think, aptly described it as making their eyes cross. Um, but it's a, another important case in the line of those trying to hold police accountable for what Justice Thomas described as a, quote, violent encounter. Can you tell us a l- very little bit about this case. Sure. Brownback against King, as you mentioned, it's kind of a thorny issue, and it involves something called the federal torts. The federal tort, it's thorny to even say it, involves something called the Federal Tort Claims Act. Yeah. <laughs> it's a law, the FTCA, as we call it on the podcast, starting now. <laughs> so I think even as people who don't follow these cases too closely know there are all kinds of barriers to suing law enforcement for alleged rights violations. And in this case, James King, who was, to make a long story short, beaten by task force officers in a case of mistaken identity, he sued the government itself under this act called the Federal Torts Claims Act. And he also tried to sue the officers themselves under a case called Bivens. And the case concerned the interplay between those two claims and whether the fact that his FTCA claims were rejected, whether something in the law called the judgment bar blocked him from pursuing these Bivens claims. And the court didn't really resolve that as to James King's case in the decision that came out. Uh, But it did say that in his case, when the district court ordered the FTCA claims rejected, that that rejection can trigger the act's judgment bar. But his lawyers really weren't looking at this case as a loss at all, even though they did lose the case. The case keeps going based on King's ability to press his claim that he can still raise this separate claim because it was brought in the same suit and the court didn't resolve that issue. Justice Sotomayor, in a concurrence, this was a unanimous opinion by Thomas, but Sotomayor wrote a concurrence basically siding with the claim that King's going to raise on remand in the Sixth Circuit and they're acting happy as if if that's what they wanted all along. So this is another case that may well be coming back, depending on what happens in the Sixth Circuit. Okay, I'm, I'm good with that. Should we should we talk about the cases? Let's do it. The sneak peek that we promised at the top of the episode. We've got three cases this week, getting a little heavier this week, I would say, from the prior week's cases. Kimberly, what's happening on Monday? Um, well, uh, this is a separation of powers case, um, a very popular talk- topic with the current court. Um, the question here is whether administrative patent judges, which are Article II judges within the PTO, whether they are principal officers under the Constitution's appointments clause who have to be appointed by the president with the advice and consent of the Senate, or if they're, quote, inferior officers who can be appointed um, by the heads of state. So this case is kind of the continuing out from a 2018 ruling in which the Supreme Court said that SEC administrative law judges were officers that needed to be appointed in compliance with the appointments clause. And this is one of several cases over the past few ter- terms really trying to sort out you know, the balance between uh, the executive's need to control these administrative agencies, which are, of course, part of the executive branch, um, but also Congress's desire to have some independence for these agencies so they aren't really so 
subject to the whims of any given administration. Um, it's actually one of three cases this term touching on that issue, including one we'll chat about in a moment. So stay tuned. Sure. In between those two cases, on Tuesday, we got a big voting rights case. These are consolidated appeals in Arizona Republican Party against DNC and Brnovich against DNC. And the cases deal with how to weigh claims of discriminatory voting rules. It involves two Arizona provisions. One is against so-called ballot harvesting, where the state bans ballot collection and delivery by third parties. The other involves a policy requiring ballots thrown out that are cast at the wrong precinct. And the argument is that these policies effectively discriminate against minorities. The question at the court, or one of them anyway, is how to evaluate these claims under the Voting Rights Act. People might remember the Shelby County case from 2013, where a 5-4 court struck down a different part of the act. So we'll be watching to see if the Roberts court continues to side with states on these claims. Right. In this case, you know, became more important after Shelby County because, you know, this is now kind of the only route uh, to challenge these laws, at least in federal courts. So how the justices decide that will will be in, important for really most election cases going forward. Yeah. And last week we talked about how uh, the Biden administration came in and changed its position, but kind of in a weird way. Yeah, right. They just they changed. They said they disagreed with the reasoning, but um, not the outcome. But they didn't tell us why they disagreed with the reasoning. Yeah, not super helpful. So the other separation of powers case to round out the week and the sitting. Uh, Carr versus Salt. So this is another appointments clause challenge, um, this time to the Social Security Administration and administrative adjudicators within that agency. Uh, This question is a little bit different, though. It's not about the merits of whether or not, um, you know, who must appoint these officers. Instead, It's about when litigants must first make that claim. Do they have to do it in front of the board or can they bring it up uh, for the first time in federal courts, Article III courts? So again, this is part of, you know, the kind of separation of powers cases that the justices are grappling with. And I'm pretty sure this is not going to be the end of uh, the saga or these cases. That's right. But that is the end of the episode for this week. And everyone, make sure to Brilliant. tune in Brilliant. next week for our deep dive <laughs> looking back at the sitting. Until then, thanks for listening. My name is David Schultz, and I'm here to announce On the Merits, a new podcast from Bloomberg Law that brings you everything you need to know about the biggest legal stories of the week, coupled with smart interviews and analysis on a variety of topics, such as the incoming Biden administration's judicial priorities. So I think diversity is is kind of the watchword here. We'll also keep our eyes on the Supreme Court. Now everyone is on Breyer watch. We're all watching to see when or if Justice Breyer is going to step down. You'll hear voices and perspectives from across the legal industry, including reporters and editors, attorneys, legal scholars, general counsel. But lest you think this podcast is all just news you can use, From time to time, we stumble on a court docket or legal opinion that, for whatever reason, just piques our interest. And he started this opinion, 224th of it, citing the Passchendaele battle. It's one of the largest battles of World War I. Um, That seems like a strange way to start off an opinion on corporate law. You can download On the Merits wherever you get your podcasts.